0: Hello, hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4B in Nianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show...
1: An investigation, which was published in Crikey a couple of months later, revealed that the video that the AJ circulated was likely doctored and independent sound experts said that the downed, not authentic downed,
0: With the conflict in Gaza, the Australian media's coverage about it is not informing the community appropriately, ostracising not only the Palestinian community, but the Jewish community too. We found out why. And later today... Well, South Africa
2: says that uh, the Genocide Convention creates universal obligations on all member states to the convention to prevent acts of genocide, to punish acts of genocide.
0: South Africa has lodged the case to the International Court of Justice. How long would it take to reach a decision? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on it Across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, a new research by the Australia Institute found out Australia could benefit from imposing a tax on plastic packaging. Countries around Europe have implemented the same scheme, and the research showed Australia could raise $1.5 billion a year with the levy, equivalent to $1,300 per tonne. Around eighty-five percent of Australians support the idea to reduce plastic waste by a tax, which could strengthen a circular economy. I asked research from the Australia Institute or co-author of the report Lilia Anderson what the research entails. What our
3: research found is that we're consuming massive amounts of plastic. So in twenty twenty one we consumed three point eight million tons of plastic waste. And that amount is set to massively increase. So by 2050, plastic consumption is expected to increase a further two and a half times. This consumption results in huge amounts of plastic waste. But out of that huge glut of plastic waste, Australia is only recovering about 14%. What's more is that despite ambitious government targets to massively increase plastic recovery, rates have actually been in de- declined since 2008. So what we have on the one hand is this plastic waste crisis that's really ramping up but the portion of waste recovering, uh, being recovered from landfill just isn't increasing. So in short that just means that we're having more and more plastic waste per year.
0: And why do you believe Australia uses a lot of plastic packaging?
3: So in short like the problem is just that we're consuming more and more of what we are consuming is plastic. So there's a reasons why that's the case one is that more products are incorporating plastic or plastic packaging there's a lot more single-use plastics today plastic is really cheap to make and so uh, is a cheap addition to or, or substitute for any product and there's just little regulation of plastic production and what that means is that the industry has basically just grown without restriction
0: So, what's the role of recycling into the plastic waste issue, and why do you believe it's not the solution to the problem?
3: So, I mean, listen, plastic recycling has a role to play, and we can increase the proportion of plastic that we recycle. But what we're trying to highlight in this paper is that it's not this kind of silver bullet solution that it's often made up to be. What we can achieve with it is limited, and for that reason, we just can't assume that we can recycle our way out of the plastics waste crisis. A few key reasons why. I mean plastic is difficult to collect and sort. There's thousands of different types of plastic and they can't be recycled together. One example uh, is plastic bottles which are made of PET and have uh, different plastic which is HDPE for the lid. So those two can't be recycled together so they're going to have to be separated prior to recycling. Even differently coloured plastics of the same type often can't be recycled together. The Sprite bottles, for example, when, when they were green, uh, coloured green, couldn't be recycled with other types of PET bottles, so this is a real limitation. Recycling, it, it's also reducing the quality of the product, so a lot of it is made in, can only be made into these kinds of lower quality, lower value products, and at the end of the day, that means that only 1% of plastic has been recycled more than once. There's often not much demand for recycled plastics because virgin plastics, which are those made from oil, instead of made from recycled plastics, are cheaper. The recycling process itself uh, can produce microplastics, which end up in the environment, so it can be a polluting process. And plastic recycling in general is just, it's expensive.
0: Now, if the Australian government imposes a tax on plastic packaging, something similar like the Europe style that it was mentioned in the research, how can that revenue be used to strengthen or implement a circular economy?
3: So you're right, a lot of countries have been implementing plastic taxes, those in the EU as well as the UK. So what we did was kind of modelled a similar style tax to the consumption of virgin or non-recycled plastic. We found that it could raise $1.5 billion based on how much plastic, virgin plastic packaging we're currently consuming. Now, this kind of tax will do two things. First, it can really encourage the use of recycled plastic. And second, it can disincentivize plastic use and encourage companies to reduce the amount of plastic packaging that they're using. In turn, the revenue from this kind of tax could be used in a bunch of different ways to help implement those kinds of circular economy principles. So, for example, it could be used to fund the sort of collection, sorting, disposal, recycling of plastic packaging. That cost is now, at the moment, currently borne by taxpayers.
0: And finally, what are the actions the Albanese government needs to do to avoid this crisis to grow?
3: Yeah, so as a start, we need real incentives to meet Australia's recycling targets. Uh, But we also, and what this paper really tries to hammer in as a point, is that we need to pair this with an understanding that recycling can only get us so far. We need to look at actually capping our consumption and the production of plastics and address that at its core.
0: That was researcher from the Australia Institute, Lilia Anderson.
4: Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire, daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia.
0: The conflict between Israel and Gaza continues, and it's developing a conversation in Australia about its media coverage. Usually the pro-Palestine movement is portrayed as anti-Jewish, and making sense of the disaster usually doesn't help in its media coverage. In a two-part conversation, The Wire's contributor from Radio Adelaide, Nikki Page, started asking sociologist and member of the Tzedek Collective in Australia, Dr. Naam McAleen, how these conflicts, this information started.
1: After October 7th, the uh, state government in New South Wales decided to light up the uh, iconic opera house in blue and white, the colours of Israel's flag. And in response to this, a protest against this co-opting of iconic symbol in in Australia, which ended up in the Opera House steps. And during this protest, there is no question that there was a small contingent that was saying things that were anti-Semitic. But at this protest, as in every pro-Palestine protest, there is a Jewish bloc, doesn't hide, we have banners, and so on. The day after this protest, the uh, Australian Jewish Association, which is a Zionist group, circulated a video and a tweet that said mob of hundreds of Muslims at the opera house steps were yelling, gas the Jews, which is a very horrific statement and terrifying. And it made Jews feel very unsafe. This video went viral. It has been referenced in media all over the world, sort of justifying that the pro-Palestine movement is anti-Semitic. An investigation, which was published in Crikey a couple of months later, revealed that the video that the AJ circulated was likely doctored, and independent sound experts said that the sound not authentic sound from the video. Now, this isn't to say that there wasn't anything anti Semitic chanted. It's highly possible that there is. No one is contesting that, but the substance of the chant was what's under debate. Some writers also in Crikey argue that it doesn't matter what is said, whether it's where's the Jews. Or gas the Jews, it's all the same. But I actually think that there's a difference, especially considering the fact that gas the Jews is an incitement to violence. It's an invocation of a form of murder from the Holocaust. It is a very violent chant, and it also made Jews feel very unsafe and isolated. So in circulating this unverified video, you know, the AJ didn't respond to the journalists. So all these questions are still around on where they got the video The outcome was that the Jewish community felt quite terrified and was basically also used to kind of scapegoat the pro-Palestine advocates and also Jewish allies standing with Palestinians.
4: There we have it. In summary, the divisive potential of the media to run stories which paint the pro-Palestine movement as anti-Semitic, potentially paint the Jewish community as solidly behind the Gaza destruction neither of which are true but it has a big impact on many people and it needs to be called out
1: Yeah well of course I can't I can't speak for all all Jewish community we are a diverse group but certainly there are many of us who feel devastated, heartbroken, angry at Israel's actions in Aza. We know that there's a, a long and painful history. We consider things in context. And for many of us who have been you know, reaching out, this uh, Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Aza has really caused people to question how to respond, how to stand in solidarity, how to call out a state that is also claiming to act in the name of Jewish people, co-opting not co-opting, but but weaponizing Jewish identity or Judaism to justify its actions in Gaza, and that is, you know, unacceptable. You know, and but there's also the other side. There is also the Jewish community that is seeing the footage, such as the one circulated by the AJA, and is feeling fearful and justified in their opposition to the Palestine Solidarity Movement, feeling justified in their Zionism. They're saying, "Look, you know, we are." you know, we are still unsafe and still unwanted everywhere. And so that reinforces uh, an isolation, um, which can also be really harmful.
4: I'd just like to take the opportunity to get you to comment on a couple of things. One is the position of the Australian government vis-à-vis arming Israel, pushing for a ceasefire or not.
1: Yeah, I think that the Australian government could be much more forceful, and there's a sense in that with with the Australian government, can, you know, what can we do? But ultimately, by putting pressure on the US, which is funding um, and providing arms and weapons to Israel, which has also interest in the Middle East, the Australian government has a great role to play, either by promoting or putting conditions of sanctions on Israel and then on the US for continuing to support and fund this war. I remember back in the day when many of us were calling for a ceasefire, uh, uh, regularly emailing Minister Wong, uh, Minister Mao, Prime Minister Albanese, urging them to call for a ceasefire, and we would get the same response over and over again. A ceasefire isn't advantageous, it's not this and this and this. And there's no excuse ever, but no not excuse particularly now, to not take a strong moral position and urge an unconditional ceasefire on Israel's part.
0: We'll be back with more from Dr. Nama Karlin, Later in the program. You're listening to the WIA, Independent Current Affairs on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Canberra on Two FM, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. This week, South Africa has lodged the case with the International Court of Justice against Israel, claiming the Middle Eastern country is committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. While these cases usually take a long time before a final judgment, this case is requesting provisional measures and the hearing will finish today. I asked Professor of International Law at the Australian National University College of Law, Donald Rothwell, what's the role of the Genocide Convention in the conflict?
2: Well, the Genocide Convention was adopted in 1948 and it was adopted by the United Nations, in response to the Holocaust against Jewish people during World War II. And so it's the founding and fundamental international legal instrument which seeks to prohibit, deter and punish acts of genocide as they may occur under the definitions provided for in the Convention And as I've said, it's the fundamental legal response to ensure that the acts of genocide that occurred during World War II uh, would never occur again. So it's the Genocide Convention which South Africa has relied upon to commence these proceedings in the international court, saying that Israel's conduct in Gaza against the Palestinian people since the 7th of October Uh, 2023, includes acts that could be considered to be uh, genocidal in intent and genocidal in conduct. And so South Africa has brought these proceedings in the international court to seek to make Israel accountable for its conduct and to halt what South Africa says is an ongoing genocide.
0: And what's the rationale for South Africa taking Israel to the court, you think?
2: Well, South Africa says that uh, the Genocide Convention creates universal obligations on all member states to the convention to prevent acts of genocide, to punish acts of genocide, and to to ensure that acts of genocide uh, do not occur. And that extends to countries like South Africa, who are observing, in their view, acts of genocide occurring, in this case, uh, in Gaza and therefore seek to use the procedures available to them under the International Court of Justice to make another country who is a party to the Genocide Convention, in this case Israel, accountable and responsible for their actions before the International Court.
0: Now I understand these type of cases take a long time and as you mentioned as well in your article from the conversation, What do we know about the International Court of Justice's process to determine provisional measures in the conflict?
2: Yes, well, I normally tell my students when I'm teaching them international law that cases before the International Court of Justice will often take somewhere between five to seven years to conclusively uh, resolve. And in all likelihood, uh, this particular case brought by South Africa will also take that length of time. However, there is a mechanism available for parties to disputes before the court to seek what are called uh, provisional measures. Now, in our Australian court system, we have something equivalent whereby parties can seek what are called injunctions before the court, uh, seeking to ensure that an order is issued by the court which seeks to maintain the status quo, in other words, seeks to maintain the current situation and seeks to ensure that a dispute is not further aggravated. So in a provisional measures request, which South Africa has brought in this instance, in addition to their substantive case against Israel, South Africa has sought expedited proceedings to bring this case before the court within two weeks of them actually having formally commenced the case, uh, and they did that on the 29th of December. So overnight in The Hague, uh, we've seen the first phase of the provisional measures oral proceedings beginning on the 11th of January. Uh, They will conclude this evening on the 12th of January. And consistent with the court's timetable in these types of cases, uh, we will most likely, I think, uh, see a decision within... Uh, seven to ten days on this South African provisional measures request.
0: So if the International Court of Justice accepts South Africa's case, what are the options Israel has on the matter?
2: Well, Israel, of course, has the opportunity uh, this evening in The Hague on the 12th of January to respond to the South African allegation. And so we wait with anticipation to hear what Israel will have to say, uh, no doubt Israel will will seek to vigorously contest its position. It will no doubt seek to argue that all it's doing in Gaza is exercising a a right of self-defence.
0: That was Professor of International Law at the Australian National University, Donald Rothwell. Earlier on the program, Radio Adelaide's Nikki Page interviewed Dr. Nama Carlin about the disinformation the commercial media has portrayed around the conflict in the Middle East. Nikki continued asking Dr. Carlin her thoughts about the support Australians are giving to Palestine.
1: One thing that I, I do want to point out that I think is really significant, um, and it's not about my feelings, but it's about how global movements come together and we can see across the world while Australia for instance remains very ambiguous or tepid in its comments about Israel and Palestine many countries are standing up in resistance we can see that with you know South Africa now it's a submission to the international to the ICJ and not only in countries but actually community groups indigenous groups standing in solidarity with Palestine so you have this movement in the global south, right? The place that has been resisting colonization, colonizers, uh, really responding strongly and in solidarity with Palestine. And we're seeing quite a big paradigm shift. People who are in power are seeing or facing or experiencing a strong defense, weekly protests all over the world. People are taking to the streets. And uh, the people in power are seeing really that those people who put them in power are unhappy and dissatisfied. So a, a big shift is happening. Many of, uh, of, of the people protesting are also learning that those in power don't really care about what protesters feel. But this is not a, a trend I think that will, will end now. Uh, it's something that's really interesting to see happening on the global, uh, global arena, how movements uh, and communities come together in solidarity. So for many people, it can be uplifting. For other people, it can be a more nerve-wracking or distressing thing to see. So it all depends kind of where you fit. But there is something really profound about this moment in, in history.
4: You did refer to sanctions. So what is your thought about the movement, the BDS, Boycott, Divest and Sanctions in relation to Israel,
1: B- BDS is a non-violent movement. That wants to pl- place pressure on Israel by using divestment of investments, of lack of you know not to not engage, and to, for instance, boycotting uh, Israeli institutions and place pressure in this way. So throughout Israel's occupation, al- there's always been non-violent Palestinian resistance. We see this with BDS. We also saw it with the Great March of Return in 2018 in Gaza and even there in the great march of return uh, hundreds i believe if not thousands were were killed by israel during a peaceful march so there's always been non violent resistance and with when it comes to bds i think m- many of us as consumers make choices about things that we should purchase not purchase and bds is one one organization that can allow either personal consumers or as states and as institutions, on cutting ties with Israel and, with, and not investing in Israeli investments and goods. Boycotts have always been, in every context, a legitimate form of action.
4: And the phrase, from the river to the sea, I've heard that used in different contexts. Some Jewish individuals or organisations interpret that as terrifying what are your thoughts about that phrase and the use of it?
0: Uh,
1: from the river to the sea is a call for freedom and liberation, and it is a call to end apartheid, which is the system. Now, in, in Israel, there are laws that discriminate even against you know Israeli citizens who are not Jewish, so against Palestinian citizens of Israel. So From the River to the Sea is a call that many in the Palestine Solidarity Movement see as a call to end apartheid, to give the right of return to the land to Palestinians and Palestinian refugees living in diaspora, to have no borders. So it's effectively living in one state, which is governed through democracy, equality, justice for all its citizens. Currently, this doesn't happen because there are discriminatory laws, even discriminatory when it comes to citizens of Israel who are Palestinians, and of course when it comes to Palestinians living in Palestine, in the West Bank, and in Gaza.
0: That was sociologist from the University of New South Wales, Dr. Nama Kalin, Ending the story by the wires, Nikki Page. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between Community Radio Stations 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 3ZZZ, 4ZZZ and Radio 4 ev in Brisbane, with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. We'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go to our website at thewire.org.au. The wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Torval and Yagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders, past, present, and emerging. Today, the wire came to you from Radio 4B in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on the wire.